Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, and verses 1 through 2 will be our text this morning. So Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 2. Last week we began to really look at verse 1 and, and consider the nature of faith, what faith is and how faith is defined in Scripture. And what we have seen is that Scripture uses the, that word faith in various different ways. There's justifying faith, that faith that, that we have when we first believe by which we are justified. We have a faith that is, uh, can be used as a word for the things that we believe about God, the, the faith. We've also seen that faith can be used in terms of how we live our lives, that we live faithfully, or we live as people of faith, you might think. Now this morning, we move into verse 2, when we consider what faith receives. Well, we know that faith that is a justifying faith receives justification. It receives the righteousness of Christ. Um, but the following, following that, when we have the fruit of faith, what does the fruit of faith result in? It re- results in the Lord's testimony about us. You think about how Jesus says, when we are welcomed home in heaven, well done, my good and faithful service. You have received a commendation from the Lord himself. It receives the welcoming voice of the Savior. And as we consider the text before us this morning, specifically verse 2, I want to consider three questions. By what means did the saints of old receive commendation from God? By what means did the saints of old receive commendation from God? And number two, who are the saints of old? And then number three is, what is this commendation that they receive? So with those three questions in mind, let us look at the text. And so let's hear the word of God in verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Now verse 1 is defining faith. It's really the fruit of faith. In how we live our lives is a life of expectation and hope in light of God's promises. Then you move into verse 2, for by it, when it says by it, it's referring back to verse 1, for by this faith, by this faith, the people of old received their commendation. So question number one, by what means did the saints of old receive commendation? Very simply, they received their commendation from God by faith. And that commendation is a testimony. And the testimony that God gives of them is not a testimony or a commendation on their personal virtues. It wasn't a commendation on how good they were. It was of their faith, how they lived their life as a fruit of faith. Consider for a moment the significance of this for our own life. How is it that we live our lives? We are so often living our lives in search of the praise of man. Where we want the applause of man and we do things according to the applause of man rather than considering what our Heavenly Father thinks about it. The Lord Jesus warns against this. He says, Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Why does Jesus say that? 
Because the false prophets were simply people pleasers. And so people spoke well of them because they were out to please people. And Jesus says, woe to you. Woe to you if that's how you live your life, is that you would receive commendation at the end of your life from people where you were praised by people. And so we recognize that we, just like these saints of old, had to constantly fight the temptation of living in fear of man and craving man's praise, but rather we are called as they were to live by faith. And I I think of adopting what Paul says in Galatians, where he, he addresses this very question And he says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? Now notice what Paul says. He says, If I were still trying to please man, that is, receive the commendation from man, I would not be a servant of Christ. These old... Testament saints, oftentimes, while they're described of receiving the commendation of God, they receive the condemnation of their neighbors. Do we have approval before God for our intelligence? Is that where we receive our commendation? You think of Moses, who was trained in all of the intelligence of Egypt. did Is that how God praised him because he was so well learned? You think of beauty. Are we praised for our beauty? Is that what God is seeking in us is to be beautiful? Consider Sarah. Even and she was very elderly, she was still considered beautiful to the point that Abram had to lie about the nature of the relationship with his wife. She was beautiful, but she was not commended for her beauty Abraham would have been one of the wealthiest people alive during his time. Was he commended for his great wealth? No. They were commended for their faith. Now, contextually, we have to grasp this. Because these these Hebrews to whom this letter was written, they were actually... uh, they were thinking about going back to the old way of life. And notice what what it says here is Abraham, the father of the faith, is not commended for all of the things that he achieved. But that also tells us this, is we're not commended, or these Hebrews would not have been commended for being children of Abraham. We're not commended for our parents' faith. And so this is a very personal thing that goes to the individual. And this, is, this was the struggle of the Jews themselves, is seeking that commendation before God by the fact that they were related to Abraham. Jesus even calls them out for this. In John chapter 8, he said, they, they answered him, that is the Jews answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Notice what he said. You would be living like Abraham lived if you were truly his children. In other words, they can't be commended for who they're related to, nor can we. You may have a faithful person in your family. You may have faithful friends. Maybe you're married to a faithful spouse. At the end of the day, the Lord is not going to judge you on the faith of your spouse 
or your, or your, or your parents or your, your grandparents. It's going to be you before a holy God as an individual. What do we see here? Is that those by faith are praised by God because of their faith. But we have to understand something so crucial about this idea of faith and their praise. It's not the faith that made this happen. It was purely by God's grace. This, this all goes back to God's grace. Faith is a gift, and the fruit of faith and faithful living is also a gift. It is by God's grace. It is Him who works in you. And so, if we desire to live faithful lives, it must then begin not with ourselves, but it must begin with our knees before God, pleading for His grace and for Him to give us the desire to fix our eyes upon Christ as we walk through this life. Because that's exactly what these saints were doing, is by faith, their eyes were fixed upon Christ. And and, and they did not have the revelation that we have of Christ. That was a hope that was unseen. An expectation that they, they, they did not fully understand. So who exactly were these saints? It says, for it by the people of old... Specifically, the, the saints of older, it says the people of old, that's speaking of past generations, it's those that were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So when you read of this, it's speaking of the saints in the Old Testament. How were the saints in the Old Testament considered saints? By faith, through grace, or by, by, through, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now this phrase, the people of old, it's literally in the Greek text, the presbyters. You, you've heard that word, presbyter. It means an elder. John Owen says it's all true believers from the foundation of the world or the giving of the first promise unto the end of the dispensation of the Old Testament are intended. In other words, it's everyone that had faith in Christ in the Old Testament is who it's referring to. Now, how can we say that they were believers in Christ, were saved by Christ, when Christ had not yet come? I think that that's that's a good question to consider. They're called saints. They're called those that were set aside. So how can we say that they were believers in Christ, saved by the blood of Christ, just as we are saved by the blood of Christ, yet Christ had not yet come? We have to first ask this one question is, how is one made righteous? How is one made righteous? Is there, was there a different means of receiving righteousness in the Old Testament that's different from the New Testament? Then first I want, to, I want to make the point as we explore this question is, the first thing is we have to admit is that these saints are described as having a righteousness. In fact, verse 4, it says, of Abel. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through faith, through the, though he died, he still speaks. It says later that Enoch pleased God. How is one able to be pleasing before a holy God when they are a sinner? They have to be accounted as being righteous. Noah is described as being the heir of righteousness that comes by faith. 
So the first thing we have to establish is that the Old Testament saints in this chapter, chapter 11, are described as righteous. And so we have to say, how is one made righteous? How is one made righteous? Righteousness comes by one means and one means only. Because we are told repeatedly in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that no one is righteous. So how is one made righteous? Righteousness comes by the shed blood of Christ. In fact, we're told this in, in Romans chapter 3. Right after Paul says, no one is righteous, just in case you missed it, no, not one, Paul says. So how are we made righteous? In verse 21 he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That is, apart from works, apart from things that we do, apart from anything that we could possibly contribute to it. It's been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How is one made righteous? by the shed blood of Christ. It is Christ's righteousness that is received by faith. It's not a righteousness that's infused with my righteousness because what does the Scripture say about our righteousness? We have none. It is purely of Christ's righteousness and Christ's righteousness alone. But you might say, but Christ hadn't died on the cross. Christ, Christ had, had not yet come, so how could they receive this righteousness of, by faith of Christ, how could they receive the righteousness of Christ? Well, there's another thing that we should consider before we answer that specific question. Not only did they trust in Christ, they also trusted that Christ was building a place for them. And they lived their life in, result, uh, in light of that. They knew that, that Israel was not their ultimate destination as a land, they actually knew that there was something far greater for them. In fact, in chapter 11, in verse 10 of Hebrews, it says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham was aware. The one who was counted as righteous by faith was aware there was something greater than this physical land that God had promised him. He knew the physical land was just a picture or a type of a greater land. And he did not live his life in light of the physical, but rather in light of the spiritual. He was living for that. So, so how did they know? How did the people of old know of Christ? And how can, how can we be sure that they all knew this? What I love about Hebrews 11 that makes so much clear, brings so much clarity to how we understand the Bible, the first person that is mentioned is one of the first human beings to exist, which is Abel. How was Abel counted righteous? How was Abel able to know of Christ? Well, Genesis 3.15. It was the curse. The promise of the Messiah comes in the form of a curse to the serpent. It says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that's singular, 
That's a personal pronoun, singular personal pronoun. He, it's speaking of a person yet to be born. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God promising through the curse to the serpent that he's going to send a son by way of the woman in a supernatural sense because it comes from the seed of the woman. Which you can figure that that out biologically. That's supernatural. God promises this early on. So how would Abel know this? I'll tell you how Abel would know this is because his dad, Adam, said, we sinned against a holy God, yet he took animal skins and covered us. And he's going to send the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head, and he will cover you like God has already covered us. He said, I'm going to send, or your God is going to send his son. And you need to look forward to that. Adam, no doubt, preached continually to his children and told them about the promise of the coming one. So much so that when Eve first has her first child, Cain, she says these words, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So many commentators note that Eve, the way she phrases that, Eve probably believed that that was the promised seed there. That's how much hope and trust they had in the promise of God. And so the people of old trusted in the promise giver. They trusted in the one that gave the promise of the coming seed. And by that, the righteousness of Christ was applied to them by God's grace through faith. And continually they saw in the promise giver glimpses of this progressively revealed that gave them a clear picture of Christ. And so how did Abel know before the written word of God? His father Adam told him of the promise. Adam gave his son the word of God and told him, trust in the promise of the Messiah. And Abel trusted in the coming Messiah, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Enoch wasn't explained to him, it wasn't explained to him that there would be a line of Judah and then there would be this King David. He didn't have any of that information. Enoch was taken by God and pleased God because he trusted in the promise giver. You think of Noah. Noah didn't have all of the answers of how the atonement worked. Noah didn't have the written word of God. He didn't have the book of Isaiah that told about how the Messiah would suffer. Noah didn't have any of that. He had the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the son of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. And it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him as righteousness. Let me give you a few passages in the New Testament just to confirm what I'm saying, to make it so clear. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, I'm going to go through these fairly quickly, so if you just want to listen. Jesus said to to the Jews, he said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. 
What was Jesus referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament. And then he says in verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now what is, Jesus is narrowing it down and saying, The the, the first five books of the Old Testament told of me. He goes on to say, after he confronted the Jews in John chapter 8, about whether Abraham was their father. Notice what he says about Abraham in John eight fifty six. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. This is speaking of something that had already happened. Abraham had already seen. Think of this peculiar passage by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.4, and they all drank from the spiritual, same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. They understood that there was a promise coming from the promise giver of a son that would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so it's by faith these saints of old were covered by the blood of Christ. Faith is that which is forward-looking, making something that's not yet real, making it real. That's what, that's what it says in verse 1. That word assurance, if you remember from last week, that it's looking forward and making something that hasn't yet happened, making it tangibly real right now. And what was, what was the fruit of their justifying faith was living for the promise, living for that promise. And Revelation 13.8 simply says this, All who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Notice how it says the book of life that was written before the foundation of the world. And it's all of those who were in the Lamb that was slain. How did those Old Testament saints receive the righteousness? They received it by faith, the righteousness of Christ. God's election of a people that would be justified by faith and they would bear the fruit of a justifying faith. That is an an eternal choice of God. And from the beginning, the people God had chosen, He chose them in His Son. Think of, of, of Ephesians 1, for in love he predestined them before the foundations of the world to be in his Son. He had chosen them. And they knew that the promised giver would send the promised Son by which they were counted righteousness. So, how were the saints of old considered saints? It was by the righteousness of Christ. This is so important for informing us how to read the Old Testament. And if we do not read it with this understanding, this particular understanding, of the Old Testament is the unfolding of the promise, we will miss the point and make the Old Testament merely about ethics. The Old Testament tells us by example how to live. It tells us by law how to live. But the Old Testament is not about that primarily. The Old Testament is the unfolding of the promise of Genesis 3.15. I was reading William Perkins. He was the, the architect of the Puritan age. They consider him the very first Puritan. 
And I was reading his commentary on this, and he made this observation that was so beautiful. He said, consider Jacob. Jacob's firstborn son was to be heir of the promise. But actually, Jacob's the one who received it, not Esau. And how did he receive it? By wearing the coat of his brother, he received the commendation of his father. And Perkins goes on to say, that's a very picture of what Christ does for us. Now, if you just read the story about that interchange between Esau and Jacob, you would maybe draw some good lessons from that. But what Perkins is saying is, no, when we read the Old Testament, what we need to be looking at is we need to be looking at Christ and how Christ, and, and by Him and Him alone we receive, receive His righteousness, is that we are covered by the coat of our elder brother, and we receive the commendation of our Heavenly Father. Let me tell you, that's a much better way to read the Old Testament than do this or do that, or don't do this, or don't be like this king or be like that king. Because actually we see the truth of the gospel when we read the Old Testament in light of, of Christ and the promise of, a, of, the, of the crushing seed that would come and crush the head of the serpent. So what is this commendation? What is this commendation? It's, it's really literally a testimony. It's a testimony that is given of someone. So it's, it's a statement about Someone else. That's, that's specifically when it says, for by it the people of old received their commendation. What is this commendation? It's a testimony. And we see this testimony unfolds in two different ways. And the first way is a testimony is given to the world through Scripture. Now what do I mean by that? God gives them commendation because right now we're reading about the faith of Abel, of Enoch, of Noah, of Moses. God has testified of their faith for countless generations. For 2,000 years, people have been reading Hebrews chapter 11, receiving the testimony of God about these men and women that were people of faith. He testifies it to the world. Now, Abel was murdered for doing good. He received commendation. God confirms him and gives testimony so that today when we read of Abel, the righteous man, Abel himself could say these words before he was killed by his brother, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He could say, whatever I suffer now is not worth or even in comparative to what I will receive in the promise. Think of the hardships of Joseph. Joseph was betrayed by his family. His brothers sold him to pagans. He was wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife. Ended up going to jail Yet the fruit of his justifying faith was not to give up. When seeing like everything was desperate for Joseph, he didn't give up, but rather he continued trusting in God. And what was the result of it? He was hated for righteousness. Now put this together. Abel was hated for righteousness. 
Joseph was hated for being righteous. You can go through this list of people and see that they were hated for being righteous. You know, just think about how Paul even describes his own life. In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 4, in verse 9, he says this, For I, I think that God has exhibit us, exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. That's what he says. This is the Apostle Paul, a man made righteous by the blood of Christ. He says, God has exhibited us like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are upheld in honor, but we are in disrepute. Notice what he's saying. People hate us. He goes on to say in verse 11, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. We reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. What is Paul saying? By righteousness, the world hated him. He says the world thinks of us as scum, as garbage, as just trash. Why? Paul, in line with this group of saints in Hebrews, were mocked, were treated harshly for their faithfulness to Christ. Why does the world hate the Christian? Why did Cain hate Abel? Why did the surrounding neighbors of Noah hate Noah? The first thing that we we have to know is is that ultimately it comes down to they hate Christ. They hate Christ. They hate the promise of the, the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent. And so they hate Christ. And, and, and the faithless people of the Old Testament, they hated the promise as well. This is why it says of them in Genesis, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. After God judged the world with a massive flood, what did the people of the world do? They wanted autonomy from God, so they built a tower that would reach up to the heavens. They wanted personal autonomy from God. They, They actually hated the promise They tried to build their roots here rather than looking forward to the eternal eternal home that was promised to them. There's another reason why Abel was hated, why Paul was hated. There's another reason why you may be hated. Because if you are in Christ, you stand in judgment of the world. You might think, hold on, I'm not judging anyone. No judgment here. So, so how is that? By refusing to walk in darkness and rather walking in the light, you will earn the scorn of the world. Let me give you the example of Exhibit A, Noah, verse 7. 
by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world. He stood in condemnation of the world. And what was the result? And he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. But this is not the only picture that we see of Noah. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. It's describing the nature of the people during Noah's time of disobedience, while Noah is obedient. And what did, what, what did Noah receive for that? The applause of man? No. He received their mocking. Think of Second Peter in chapter 2 and verse 5 of, of Noah. Again, it says, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And as a result of that, he earned not the applause of man, he received the scorn of man. Abel did not receive the applause of his brother. I'm glad you were so faithful, brother Abel. No, he ended up earning his hand in death. You see, the world will hate the one who does right before God. And why is that? Because if they are not doing right before God, your life testifies against their sin. I I don't think that we've ever experienced in our time where this is ever more so apparent. In, 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 In our time right now, this moment of history that we're living in, I think it's more apparent than any other time that we've ever lived. Because we live in a time today where, where sin is paraded on the streets, where sin is embraced. And if you don't applaud it as not only being approving, but encouraging it, you are considered hateful. And so if you don't even say anything, you're just silent, you're already considered hateful. If you speak against it, you're just considered completely wicked. This is exactly what happened with these of faith. So why does the world hate the Christian? Because when the world's not doing right before God and you refuse to walk in their darkness, they'll mock you. First Peter is all about that. And there's two things that can happen. Either one is they become convicted and cry out for their need for a Savior, or they, they hate and they hate. And you have to also notice this. This is what we also see in Scripture that these experienced here is that it spreads from the Christian individual to Christians as a whole. It, it spreads to the church. I remember someone telling me right in the earliest parts of 2020, you know it's the church that's spreading this virus that's making everything go bad. It spreads from the Christian to the Christians as a whole. 
You think of one bad experience of a faithless person with a Christian, it leads to this. I hate Christians, they are so judgmental. Think about this for a second. Let me just show you historically and prove my point here. Think of Haman. You know Haman. And think about how Haman acted towards Mordecai. His hatred was really of Mordecai. But what did, what did that hatred of the individual Mordecai lead to? It, it, he directed it towards all of the Jewish people. In fact, we read in Esther chapter 3, in verse 6, But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. What did they have to do with Mordecai? They were people of faith. There were people that were following the promise. And so Haman's hate begins with Mordecai, but then it spreads to all. So the righteous one, Mordecai, is now associated with his people, and the people can't escape it. If that sounds depressing or discouraging, I, I actually hope this, this serves as an encouragement for us I hope it actually encourages us today, not, not discourages us. What, what an encouragement to know that, that our life, which is, is such a short mist that Scripture describes as appearing and then disappearing and is gone, that we who trust in Christ have an eternal testimony. We're not, we're not looking for the applause of man. What happens when the applause of man, they stop clapping and you walk off the stage? It's gone. What are we living for? The applause of man? That which comes and goes? You see, this testimony was given to the world through Scripture, but it was also given to a second thing, and that was inwardly to their heart. It was given into their heart. And there's so many places in Scripture that tell us that the Spirit communicates with our spirit, that we may know that uh, our God is our Heavenly Father. But I just want to look at one verse in 1 John 5.10. It says, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. They trusted and the seed of the woman that would come and crush the serpent's head. And that testimony was given in their heart. And we have to know that what John tells us here in 1 John is that same truth applies to us, that if you are in Christ, He has testified to your heart that there is something greater. In other words, your, your name is not going to be written in this Bible but if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the testimony of God is imprinted upon your heart already. And that is what encourages you to walk by faith through this life. It is when we read God's promises and we see God's promises, we're able to set our eyes on, on something which is greater, something that is eternal, and, and that by the Spirit it, it is confirmed in our heart that we are simply elect exiles, as Peter says. And that we can say with the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
That's applied to the Christian. The very same thing that Abraham lived for, we are told this is to be what we live for. This was the testimony given of the people of God. So should we aim to receive a good report? Should we aim to receive a good report? I'm leaving that open-ended. Let me, let me quote the, of how we live our lives. Let me quote the Westminster Catechism, question one. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy Him forever. That's our aim. Our chief aim should be obedience unto the glory of God. Think of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 in verse 16. Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That, that sets our trajectory. Our trajectory is not man and pleasing man, but rather our trajectory is the glory of God. And this speaks of our motivation, doesn't it? What motivates me to do the things that I do? So we, for instance, you think of why we give, of our time, our treasures, our talents. Do we give to be applauded, or do we give to give God glory for what, how he has gifted us? Uh, why is it that we do the things that we do as Christians? Is it to receive the applause of man? I always find it interesting that on social media, someone will spend a lot of time telling what they did for Jesus. And I'm not making a judgment on anyone, but I have always found that interesting. Think of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, is it, is it wrong to want to be recognized by men in some sense? I, I, I think we have to... Look at the full counsel of God's Word. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8.21, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. We live to be honorable before God and man. And so that means that we want to live righteously for God's glory so that we can be honorable before man and that nothing could ever be accused of us. Now, if this faith is the commendation by God. And that's what we should aim for. That there's nothing greater that we could aim for than to receive God's testimony. What does it look like? Let me give you very quickly points for us to chew on. First, a religious life. That that's your priority. What do I mean by a religious life? Faithfulness in the local church using the means of grace. What is faithfulness in the local church and the means of grace? It's prayer, singing, reading scripture, preaching, the ordinances, fellowship centered around Christ, discipling, being discipled. 
And without, without any of those elements, we will not grow. But, but that, is, that is a mark of, of, that is a fruit of faith. So what does this look like that we're, that we're aiming for? Well, the religious life, one, but it's also, it's also a life of self-denial. That's really hard for us, isn't it? Well, consider what, what Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him Will the Son of Man be ashamed when He comes in this glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels? But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. As Jesus says, pick up your cross daily. The cross was an instrument of death. We know that. Daily. Dying to self. I was just speaking to a good friend that has gone through a rough patch of, of, of ministry and and he said to me, he goes, I, I, I thought I was done dying daily. Turns out I'm not. Not only do we want to have a religious life, a life of self-denial, but a, in, in flowing out of our self-denial is caring for others. In fact, James says this is true religion. In James 1.26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and to widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Religious life, self-denial, caring for others, and then living above reproach because one slip, the world will jump on you. The world will jump on you. We do this by God's grace through faith. And this faith is the fruit of our justification before a holy God. We are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that faith is of such a nature that we live faithfully towards that city that is to come. That is our promise. And we trust in the promise giver just as Abel did, just as Enoch did, just as Noah did. And we have a righteousness by faith that is not our righteousness, just as Abel, just as Enoch, just as Noah, and all of the Old Testament saints. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your gospel, that we may receive a righteousness not our own, but a righteousness that is alien to us, is outside of us, the very righteousness of Christ. Father, we praise you that it is the empty hand of faith. There's nothing we contribute to it, but we have a sufficient Savior that is saved to the uttermost. It's in his name we pray. Amen.